Let's take our Bibles and go to the last book in the Bible, Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 12. Revelation has often been called the most confusing book in the Bible. But today we're going to try to break down about 11 verses of it, alright? So you can come away like, I don't know what the rest of it may mean, but we're going to unpack this. Revelation 12. I'm going to speak on the subject, Overcomers. Just to let you know, at the start of this, in case you haven't realized in your walk with Christ, that you are in a war. There is an enemy of your souls, and his name is Satan, the devil. And he, if you are not saved yet, he wants to tell you that it's not true. He wants to tell you that it's not a big deal. He wants to tell you things like it's just an individual thing so you can create whatever belief you want. And the most deceptive lie that Satan could ever give you if you've not been saved yet is this. That may be a good idea to get saved one day, but just do it tomorrow, right? Do it next week. And then next week turns into next week, and next week turns into the next day, and this morning turns into this evening, and then there's that thing called death. I think a lot of people in hell say, I was going to get saved, but I didn't know I was going to die before I planned to do it. And some of you look back and you say, Jeff, I have been saved. I have been born again. I'm living for Jesus. Satan's plan is to discourage you. Satan's plan is to distract you, to beat you down with everything he can. Have some of you experienced that in your Christian life before? You say, Lord, I thought I was doing everything right by your power, but it seems like every wrench in the toolbox has been thrown at me. Word on screen, you are in a war. Go with me to Revelation 12. Let's back up to uh, the 11th chapter. This is one uh, place, if you're a Bible scholar, to where the people who put the chapters and verses probably didn't put it right. Chapter 12 should begin in chapter 11, verse 19. Notice it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of His covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Alright, that sounds a little bit like what we've experienced in Virginia the last couple of weeks. Are y'all okay this morning? Right, you're like, oh, is the great tribulation coming? Like tornadoes in Rocky Mount. Alright, here's what's going on. The Apostle John, in his 90s, In his 90s, stop right there. In his 90s, and check this out, he's an old con. He's on a, like this Alcatraz type of place, and he's in prison in his 90s. That's like original gangland, right? Like he's like, I'm not, I'm not selling out. I'm, I, here's the thing. He's there, and he's in prison, and he's alone in his cell. Time out. You're in your 90s, you're in prison, you're in prison on an island, and you're alone. Wouldn't most of us say that that situation may just have like a happy ending of passing on soon? 
Say, Jeff, you're not supposed to say stuff like that. Hold on. I think that the Bible right here, the fact that Revelation was given to a man in his 90s in prison alone is the greatest revelation in all the Bible of what would happen in the future. So no matter your age or your health, never say that God can't use me. Are y'all awake? Never say that. If you ever feel used up and tired and old and I don't know, like just feeling that, look at Revelation. So this is the picture. He's there and God gives them this picture. Notice chapter 12. This is when it begins to get very interesting. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her had a crown of twelve stars. I put notes here in the bulletin, like cliff notes for what this stuff symbolizes. Uh, right there, verse one: the woman with the clothed with the sun, the the moon under her feet, a crown of twelve stars. What most, almost all Bible scholars say this represents is the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter thirty-seven, verse nine: Joseph has a dream, and it's basically the same. Picture The 12 stars represent his brothers who would bow down to him and uh, so forth and so on. Verse number 2. Here's where it gets even more interesting. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So this represents, verse 2, the historic persecution of Israel. Have you ever wondered, when you just look at the history of the world, why this one Semitic people group, not very big in stature or number, continually is kind of like in the bullseye of all of these tyrannical empires? Have you ever wondered that? Like how small the Jewish population is in comparison to the whole world. But when you look back on history, how much of world history revolves around this very small, seemingly obscure people in a dusty plain near the Mediterranean Ocean. It just doesn't add up. Notice verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Now this is where, ladies, imagine you're the woman about to give birth and this is what you see. Behold a great red dragon. You say, I don't know what they gave you, but I think they got the IVs mixed up. All right? A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood where? Before the woman who was about to give birth so that, here's the purpose, so that when she bore child, he, the dragon, might devour it. This speaks of the satanic rebellion against God to where a third of the angels rebelled against God. They say, we want to go with the new guy on the block who thinks he's big and bad, Satan. They were wrong. They're now demons. What happened here is that Satan, from the beginning... When pride entered into his heart, he desired to destroy God's plan. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God said, you, you know, the, speaking about through um, all nations will be blessed to you. This ties together with Genesis chapter 12 as well. Chapter 3, verse 15 speaks about the snake or the serpent will strike your heel, but you shall strike or crush his head. All of that ties together with this. Satan knew... God's character. And Satan knew 
that God would want to and desire to and plan to redeem, to forgive, to rescue, to deliver this whole jacked up place called planet Earth with the people here. And Satan knew that God would send the Messiah through the line of Israel. And not just the line of Israel. I mean, imagine this. If God had been like us and He had tried to send Jesus the Messiah into the world, you'd kind of keep that under wraps, wouldn't you? If you had this dragon, this representative of this satanic movement to destroy the Jewish people, you wouldn't tell anybody. you just let him be born in some obscure place and all of a sudden, oh, by the way, here's the Messiah. But God's like, by the way, it's going to happen in a specific town through a specific nation, but not only that, through a specific tribe, the tribe of Judah. So when you look back at the Bible, you see this long war against God where Satan is trying to destroy the Jewish people. Now think about it like this. Imagine if you're Satan. It's a weird thought. You ever been asked that before in church? You're like, I don't know, man, but my mom, it wouldn't take too hard. She is mean as a snake. Right? Wouldn't she? All right, so, so think about if you are going to try to destroy the plan of God and God said... His plan is going to come through national Israel. You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to say, so if I destroy ethnic national Israel, then God can't send His Messiah. Y'all tracking with me on this? You thought, I, so if they're all dead, you can't send a Messiah through a people that doesn't exist. I was teaching in a secular college about three years ago, a philosophy class. How lame is that? And one of the, the students randomly asked, how come the world has historically hated the Jewish people? My heart was filled with joy. It was like she gave me a big gospel springboard. And we began to talk about this stuff. And some of the secular students were like, well, you know that... Yeah, what, you heard those secular gears begin to turn. Notice what happens in verse 5. Satan, sorry, she gave birth to a male child. This is Jesus. The one who is to... This is very politically incorrect because no one voted for this. The one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron means Jesus is not just your homeboy. Jesus is not just an amigo or a friend. Jesus is king. And notice right here in verse 5, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. So right here in verse 5, you have the birth, the life, and the ascension of Christ. The death of Christ and resurrection is assumed. Notice verse number 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days, three and a half years. This goes forward to the Great Tribulation. Now it goes back in verse 7. Y'all still tracking with me on this? We're going to get to the best verse here in just a sec. But now war rose in heaven. So this is looking back. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Michael is the archangel. Uh, you could say uh, one of God's greatest angels. And the dragon and his angels fought back. So this is spiritual warfare. Verse 8. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was what? Yeah. Cast out or you could translate this. Thrown down. In gamer terminology, that is total ponage. You got owned. You are thrown out. You are disowned. You lose your place. And notice that ancient serpent who is called 
the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, repeat, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ or His Messiah have come and the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Amen? Now notice in here, you don't see people who are very skilled at being Christians having anything to do ultimately with Satan losing. That should hopefully encourage all of us that the Christian life in victory is not a matter of how big and how jacked up we can get spiritually. Can I get a witness this morning? The dragon was defeated through the gospel. Go to verse 11. And they... Here's where we enter into the picture. Speaking of us. And they have conquered him, Satan, by what? Number one. The blood of the Lamb. By the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives even unto or even in the face or even to the extent of death. Verse 12. Rejoice, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The tribulation, which is another sermon for another time, will be the closest thing that we could ever imagine like hell on earth. The power of hell cannot stop the power of the gospel, and a life that is committed to Jesus Christ. That's the driving thought of this passage. Notice verse 11 again. The first key to victory here is they conquered, they overcame Him by what? Somebody help me out. The blood of the Lamb. This refers to the sacrifice of Jesus. Have you ever been you know, cut before? You look down. My brother was working on a film set this past week. He was actually doing... Some of y'all know my brother. He was actually doing real stunts for a real movie. Isn't that cool? Right? I'm like, I know him. So when I go home and I ask him for his signature and all that stuff... But he, he actually was going along. He come, came into some glass. I don't want to gross everybody out. But he had a really bad cut deep into his arm. So you know what he did as a guy? You know, you take a picture of it and you put it on Facebook so the world, world can see it. Like, here's my wound and here's my bandage. Right? Kind of like one of those manly things. But have you ever been cut before? Have you been around blood? You notice that, that there's something very unique about it. And if you and I could take a... You ever wanted to go... I this, this may be weird for some of y'all if you're extremely serious. But you ever wanted to go back and travel in time? You know? I mean, not so much to travel back in time to, to, to kick your own tail when you're eight, in 8th and ninth grade and be like, what are you doing? Not one of those. But like actually go back in time and observe great things that have happened. If we could go back in time and we could see before Jesus came, the Hebrew people, when they went to the temple on the Day of Atonement. And how everyone would be utterly silent. Even the kids. And, and they would look as, as they brought those goats up and one would be, would be killed. The blood would drain out. And the other one, the, the high priest would take his hands and he would put his hands on the head of that 
that animal and it would be cast out. It would be, I guess, shooed away. And it was like the scapegoat. And then when the common people came to sacrifice, they, they walked a little lamb up. Didn't know what was going to happen. And they brought it to the priest. And they saw the sacrifice. And they saw the blood drain out. It was a reminder to them that sin produces death. And if we had been back there and we had been very poor, we would have taken a couple of turtle doves, which that's what Jesus' parents brought to sacrifice. And you just take this dove that wouldn't hurt or couldn't hurt anything, and you take it in, and the dove is, is sacrificed, and you see its blood drain out. And maybe someone next to you, they're praying, and, and kind of like that solemn, that serious moment. And they say, one day, God will send the Messiah who will pay for our sins. But they continued to sacrifice because the Bible says, Leviticus, it says that only by the shedding of blood is there forgiveness of sins. And so in the Old Testament, it even says that when you're out or when you're hunting and there is blood that has been shed on the ground to cover it up. Because it's such a serious thing. When someone gives their blood... They're literally giving physical life. If you can give blood and you do, praise God for you. If you go and they, you know, they give you the orange juice and whatnot and, and they stick the needle in and you give your blood, think about, think about this verse. That the only thing, advantage that we have against the enemy is the blood of Jesus. Someone who came into the world and who gave up everything that he had. To live in a pigsty for someone like me. Are you guys tracking with me this morning? For people who didn't even care. And then one day, we heard the gospel. This is where it gets good. We heard the gospel. Maybe we were a little kid drinking Kool-Aid and a sugar cookie at VBS, right? Or maybe you came to a Sunday morning and you heard the gospel. And it was like the Holy Spirit just ripped away those blinders and you said, that's for me. And you trusted Jesus. The blood of the Lamb. Now think about it like this. When we think about blood, it, it refers to death, but it also refers to life. The life of the flesh is, is in the blood. But does it, don't you think that it's in a complete inversion of human logic? That the way that Jesus conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, the way that Jesus has conquered, if you've been saved, all of your past baggage is through dying. Now stop right there. I don't know of any warrior. I don't know of any fight. I don't know of any battle where the person won by allowing themselves to... It doesn't make sense. Patton says, and I'm going to give you the Sunday morning version, the way you win a war is you kill them until they get tired of being killed. The way that you win is you don't give your life for your country, you make the other soldier give his life for his country. That's the way you win. But when we see Jesus, He could have called down legions of angels. I mean, that's like automatic execution for all of His enemies. But Jesus didn't. Why? 
Because Jesus was committed to go the distance. And when Jesus died, it was kind of like if you've ever read that book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or if you've seen the movie, that overturning of the law of death. Aslan, the great lion who could have killed all of the enemies, he went willingly and humbly and he laid there and allowed himself to be tortured and killed to save the boy Edmund who had betrayed even his own brothers and his own sisters. But then in the story, and this is like a real story in Scripture, three days later, Jesus arose from the dead. Amen? So it's like you get the best of both worlds. Jesus wasn't so tied to life that He says, I love my life. I love my disciples. They're a little slow. If you've ever read the Gospels, you know what I'm talking about. I I, I love you know my mother who's here. I love my job. I love ministering to people. I just can't go the distance. Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. So if you know, if you're freed from the cares of life and you die, but then you come back from the dead, you're neither bound by life or death. There's only one person who can do that. That's Jesus Christ. I just want to stop right here and say how proud I am in a non-arrogant way of the grace of God for a church who's going to send people across the ocean To go to a religious country, but a country where a very small minority of people know Jesus Christ in a personal and intimate way. Praise God for your gifts. Thank you for praying. And I'll tell you what, when we come back, the gospel will have been preached. Or, and I don't want to say this, but we will, we're we're, going to, through the power of God. I I realized I was going to say we're going to die trying, but I know some of y'all, it's the first time you've ever been on a mission trip. It's probably not the best thing to say. All right, some of you got like miracles, you know, like, all right, I'm going to kill the pastor between now and next week. He has not taken him to die yet. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. This is serious. This is real. Notice it's his blood. Boy, what a great point when you talk to a Muslim. I have a friend, I've probably told you about him before. But in his country, he's a Muslim. They actually sacrifice sheep. Interesting. I said, why do you sacrifice sheep? He says, to pay for our sins. Very interesting. And this is a, this is a long, nerdy discussion, but for those of you who want to do research, uh, research the subject original monotheism. For years and years and decades, scholars thought that in the beginning, people evolved and came and they thought there were all sorts of gods. And then through an evolutionary process, they finally said, you know what? Let's just put away all these gods and worship one. But guess what we're finding now? Even in indigenous tribes who worship many gods, there's the concept of what they call the great sky god who we have offended. Does this sound similar to anybody? A great sky god who cannot be approached because we have offended Him, but we don't know how to have a relationship with Him, so we settle for making up our own gods. It is absolutely academically sound. And in the Bible, it says originally there was the worship of the one true God, and then sin came in, and polytheism, the worship of many gods, is simply a corruption of God's revelation in the beginning. So we tell every person, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslim, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. They don't have to die in jihad. They don't have to torture themselves. They don't have to sit there and learn all of these things. It's so simple that hardworking Americans stumble over it. 
Because us, we say, I don't want anything unless I've earned it. Hardworking, pull myself up by my bootstraps, but when you come to the gospel, the tires screech to a halt, and Jesus is doing the, no, 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 you can't, I have, trust me. And that's so hard. But when you do, that's where freedom comes. Number two, the word of their testimony. Let me stop here. I think I glossed over something really important. The word overcome or conquered, I would highly encourage you to take notes. The word in the Greek language, this is is very intriguing, is the, the noun form would be the word Nike. You guys remember back in the late 80s when the Air Jordans came out, people like getting shot for shoes, right? Like starter jackets and so forth. Like, why? I, I don't understand. You know, it's like, I got a starter jacket and those cheesy commercials and so forth. I, I never understood Nike until I looked it up. Here's the picture. Nike in the Greek language referred to the goddess of Nike. She was in the Olympics, the goddess of victory. Very interesting. This is actually in the aorist uh, tense. I know all of you came to learn that this morning, right? Like you're totally stoked. Like aorist, awesome. All right. It would be similar to our English past tense. So here's what John is saying. He wrote this in the first century A.D. But he's writing it in the past tense. This has not happened yet, but since God said it will happen, as far as God is concerned, it's as good as done. Can we get an amen? And when they would have read this, these believers under persecution in the first century, being thrown to lions and so forth, when they received that Greek manuscript, they oh, Nikao, Nike! So that means that when the race of my life is won, that I will be able to, through Jesus, conquer and have victory and win. It brought to mind to these original hearers when that runner would would go across the finish line and would see the goddess of Nike there holding up victory. It, it was it would blow their minds. So next time you see somebody at the gym with Nike, just be like Revelation twelve eleven. And then invite him to come to church on Sunday. They conquered, they overcame him. Secondly, by the blood, first the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. The word, this word, testimony is martyr. You know, sometimes if you're, I guess, if if the old school say, well, my mom or my father, I, I was testifying, right? You ever heard that used? I was testifying. I was given a a testimony. Today we say, I shared my testimony. I told somebody how Jesus saved me. The word for testimony is the Greek word marturo. Don't miss this. In the first century, when Christianity was exploding and, and spreading out, when you gave your testimony... It wasn't just in someone's home on a Tuesday night. You often gave your testimony when you gave your life. And often I'm just so convicted 
the, the, you know, the chance, there's a good chance I'm going to be able to go to Romania in, in August and, and teach there in an apologetics camp and meet pastors who've been under persecution in the past. And going to the former Soviet Union, I met a man whose son was killed by the communists for being a Christian. I've had people have problems with some of the stuff I've said. I've had people be rude in the past. But I've never even swung at as a preacher. Some people say, give it time, give it time. <laughs> but I hope that this is, is bleeding into our hearts. We say testimony historically. It's been people who gave their life. And the gospel is an agent of change. I remember Dr. Paul Negrut who uh, pastored under the Iron Curtain in Romania. And then once the veil was lifted and political freedom came, he preached for six months. Can you imagine hearing the same sermon for six months? And it was on this. The repentance of the repenters. If you're a Christian in Romania, you're called a repenter. It's kind of like a... A derogatory term, you know, like uh, you're, you know, repenter, Baptist, Christian, fundamentalist, evangelical. He preached for six months on the repentance of the repenters. And finally, after six months, the Holy Spirit broke through. And there was weeping and repentance. And it scares me because, think about this. People who had been under the Iron Curtain, been under the thumb of dictators for decades... If they needed six months worth of repentance-based preaching for the Holy Spirit to break through, what must we and what must I in America need when we are distracted by everything that society has to offer? These people, and maybe us one day, by the word of their testimony... When we give our testimony, nothing should enter in such as I. It is what Jesus has done for me. There's a friend of mine in India. <clears throat> we went to school together. His dad, um, this, is, this is his story. It's called, I was to be killed, but the Lord saved me. His dad's name is Dr. Dr. J. He says, I was born into an Orthodox Hindu family. My grandfather was a Hindu priest. When I was five, I lost my mother. When I was six, I lost my father. My elder sister and younger brother died when I was eight. Immediately, my grandfather took me to a palmist. Be like a Hindu witch doctor. He read my hands and said, This boy is a curse to this family. He is the cause for the death of his parents, sister, and brother. To remove the curse, he must be killed. Imagine hearing that when you're eight years old. No relative would help me. I did not know where to go. Nobody was there to love me. My grandmother was somewhat kind when she said to my grandfather, Please do not kill this boy. He is old enough to live by himself by begging. Send him out of the house. Imagine hearing that when you're a child. I slept outside the house. I used to go to the Hindu temple and cry for hours together and drink the dirty water thinking that my curse and unpardonable sins of my previous life would be washed away. The more prayer I offered to the idol Kali Devi, a Hindu goddess, it's the goddess of blood and violence, the worst thing happened. My youngest brother became a victim of the chicken pox and he died. I used to think about him and cry many times even after my salvation experience because he was gone away without Jesus. 
This kind-hearted grandmother of mine also changed her attitude towards me. She wanted me to die without food. Unless I made one sleeping mat per day, my grandmother would not give me one simple meal a day. When I became sick, nobody cared for me. Everybody wanted me to die. I used to pray to Kali Devi, Amma Kali Devi, if you do not want to help me, I do not want to live on this earth. Please kill me. A younger sister than me used to embrace me and cry with me. My grandmother told her not even to touch me because I was a curse to the family. I could see tears rolling down her cheeks. Here's where it gets good. Thank the supreme, ultimate, all-powerful, absolute God, Jehovah, the Creator, Sustainer, and Savior. He saw my tears and sent a Dutchman all the way from Holland to bring me to a Christian orphanage. It was a heaven on earth for me. Now this orphanage produced hundreds of pastors, missionaries, and evangelists. I was given fish to eat and taught about the Lord God. I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I was doing my high school studies. I started proclaiming the love of Jesus. High school. My grandfather, check this, original guy who brought him to the witch doctor. My grandfather became a Christian when he was 105 years old. My younger, youngest sister and her family also found Christ then. One day when I was passing at a bus stop, I saw an orphan girl lying near the bus stand. It was rainy season. Many passed by, but nobody cared for her. The Lord spoke to me clearly. Jay, once you were in this condition and I took care of you through the orphanage, now you must do my ministry. He now is in charge of an orphanage and he says we have now 2,000 children, widows, and workers The children are the innocent ones. They are at the mercy. This is so profound. They, the children, are at the mercy of the adults in this world. They live or die, eat or starve by the will of others. That is my friend's dad who was brought to faith in Christ because a guy from the Netherlands was faithful to go on a short-term mission trip and take care of a boy who had been disowned by his family. By the blood of Jesus Christ, by the word of our testimony, and finally, they did not love their lives even in the face of death. I pray that God does such a work in our church that we will desire God's will above everything else, that we will not be complainers, we will not be watch watchers on Sunday, that we will not have eyes that are dry from the brokenness in Franklin County, but God would raise us up to say, I am willing to do whatever it takes to reach people for Jesus. That He would just kind of help those scales to fall from our eyes. That when we get discouraged and when we get down, we would not lose sight of Jesus Christ is the key. We'll close with this as a young skinny, from what um, the reports say, an awkward young man named Bill Wallace from Knoxville, Tennessee. He wanted to be a doctor. He wanted to go serve in China. Got his MD. He went over. He began to do all sorts of work in World War II. He was helping Chinese people be in front of the advance of the Japanese soldiers. If you've ever heard or read of the, the work, The Rape of Nanking. 
made a statement one time after seeing so much death and destruction, it was raining in torrents. He said, heaven cries with us, with us on this day. After World War II was finished, the revolution, communism hit China. And he was put on trial, he was put on mock trial for being a foreign spy and so forth. The people who he had helped, some he had saved their lives, they came and couldn't believe what was happening, but the communist authorities were in control. They put Bill into what would be considered a human bird cage, and night after night they would take long poles and they would pummel him from all sides until he was basically unconscious. And one of the Christians who survived that was in a cell or a cage next to him, and he said, how are you doing? And Bill says, I'm not doing very well. This Christian, this national Chinese Christian, began to speak words of life into Bill Wallace and allowed him to stay firm. And finally, one night after an unusually brutal beating, the communist guards came in the next morning to find that the, the kind doctor who had given up a plush life in America had died. And when I was studying the life of Bill Wallace, his real name is William. William Wallace. His parents named him after one of the greatest heroes of freedom this world has ever seen. And little did they know that their skinny, sometimes a socially awkward son would give his life in an area of the world that was being consumed in darkness. But today, the Chinese church is absolutely on fire because Bill Wallace, many national Christians and missionaries did not love their lives even to the point of death.